who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. Each Monday, I bring you a brand new full-length episode covering something from a wide variety of topics. And then every Friday, come meet up with me again for a mini What's in the News episode so you can stay up to date on everything that's going on in the world. Check out Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And rage on. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Rider Jam podcast which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max and Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker. He is a little bit less deep in the bunker right now. He is wandering around this room, wondering why I'm talking to my computer, not playing with him. That's okay, because I'm very excited about the program today. Lucy Leitner's on the show. Now, if you have listened to the program, we had her on the video podcast a couple months ago. Uh, and I enjoyed talking to her so much, we decided to do a longer version of this. Her book, Outrage Level 10, is out right now. If you don't remember, Lucy's the author of horror comedy novels. Um, she's got two working stiffs and the current one, Outrage Level 10. She's from Arlington, Virginia. Uh, she lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania right now, and she's been making up stories, scary stories in particular, since she was 10, when she frightened her little sister out of sharing a room. And if you stick around, you'll hear a little bit about that. After earning her master's in 2010, she won an award for a piece in Justice Magazine and then quit journalism. She's now a writer, spokesperson, and sometimes hand model for a global vitamin company that tends to post more zombie content on social media than its competitors. When she's not scaring customers into taking their vitamins, she's working on her next horror novel. We've spent a fair amount of time offline talking about the business of writing, um, you know, she's in that niche world where, uh, like horror romance, where you can really build an audience and you can really control your career. So talk a little bit about that on the show, too. Before we get to all that, a couple pieces of business. As you know, the jam comes out every Wednesday. So make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts and do two things to help us out. Tell your friends about us and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also pop on over to Facebook and leave us a review there. Or head to the Writer's Jam and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. While you're there, you can check out the new video podcast series that comes out sporadically on Mondays and Fridays. You can buy the book of anybody who's been on the show by clicking on our bookshop link. 
If you're looking for a book, click on the book reviews and you'll see the reviews of all the books that we've been reading here in the jam. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter where you get book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, happenings around the web. Lastly, while you're at the site, you can support the entire Solid Listen Network. Click on that Patreon button for just a couple bucks a month. Get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and bonus content. Now, I don't generally edit interviews. It's just not a thing that we do here. Um, what light editing I do is oftentimes taking me out because you've all heard most of my stories already, and there's no reason for you to keep hearing the same ones over and over again. But this one I did have to edit a little bit because Lucy uh, is an athlete. And um, obviously, I used to do that kind of stuff as well. And we met in our CrossFit gym. And she's like, she's a super good athlete. And so we spent about 20 minutes. The CrossFit Open or whatever the hell it's called now was getting ready to happen. And so we were talking all about that. And in my head, in my head, as I sat down, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to like trim out about two or three minutes as we talk about sports. And I was listening to it, and I was like, oh, my God, like, we didn't even get to the interview for, like, 25 minutes because we were talking about Olympic lifting and CrossFit and baseball. She had played baseball when she was young, which you'll hear about, um, and then played softball. And one of the really interesting things about that, and I don't know if this part made the cut or not, because I also didn't figure out you guys needed to deep dive into um, being a master's athlete. But she was talking about, uh, you know, she doesn't get hurt doing it because she doesn't really have an athlete mentality. Like, she is not someone like me that grew up with athletics as sort of the primary thing that you did. And so you have you, that's just sort of the built-in default thing in my head now. I'm not a very good athlete anymore, and I don't know if I was ever a great athlete, but I was one of those athletes that would you were I was going to wear you down. Like, you may win, but you were going to know that you were in a fight. And that was just, that was how, that was the only way I could compete. Which is fine when you're 18 and 19. Uh, when you're 49, it's, that's less of a thing. And so the last 10 years, really, my 40s, I've had to learn to listen to my body and realize that, like, you can't just grind through things. Like, that's not actually how things work. And I bring that up because she was talking about like all of this like really intense stuff that she does. And then she'd be like, oh, well, that one was too hard. And, I, you know, like, oh, I'm not going to do, you know, whatever, 30 rope climbs for a thing that I've never done one rope climb. Uh, but it would be in the context of like all this other crazy, insane stuff that she did. And I just kept in the back of my head thinking like, you absolutely have the athlete mentality. Like it may not be... Um, like, the killer instinct that one might have had when they were younger. But, like, she goes at it pretty good. And, like, seeing her in the gym uh, is just inspiring. She's just one of those people that when you're there, if you see him and the wad's about to start. And I do Olympic lifting. So, like, I'm nowhere near any of those people. Like, I'm doing nothing for time. I'm doing nothing fast. Like, I'm doing old man lifting. But when the the sort of daily competition starts you pop over and just see, like, oh, what's that going to look like? 
So that was just one of those funny moments for me where I was like, oh, yeah, no, like I, we talked about this for just a couple of minutes. Like this is a literary show. And then I was listening. and was like, absolutely not. This is absolutely not a literary show today. This is a 25 minute podcast about competing as a master's athlete in Olympic lifting and CrossFit. So you're welcome for me editing that out today because her story is actually really great. I don't know why I said actually there, as if maybe we thought that it wasn't. She's got a fantastic story and is one of those writers that I love to interview where she sort of came to it on her own. She has some training in school, but was sort of heading in one direction and then went in another and is finding her way into this horror niche. And I am endlessly fascinated by the romance in horror niches in like independent and small press writing because it is one of the most fascinating places because it's such a vibrant place and like people build businesses there and writers can sort of run their own thing there in a way that is more difficult if you're going through uh, a big five publisher because getting through that gate is really hard, um, that big five publisher thing. It, whereas building the audience is really hard on this other thing because you have to do everything yourself. And let's just note, the baseline is all the writing is terrible to do. It just depends on like what it is you're doing. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about like how do you build your own thing because she has that athlete mentality, right? Like she has sort of figured out where she's going and you can see like it's a roller coaster. Like she sort of tick, tick, tick to the top and like I've come into her life in this little interview right as the roller coaster is about to go over, right? And like right as about everything is about to start going really fast for her. And so just in the two or three months since we did our first podcast where we did the video podcast to now, watching what she started to accomplish and where she's starting to take her writing is really fun. Um, and so that. I felt was more important than 25 minutes of us talking about like being old athletes. So again, you're welcome. All right. That is all I got about this. It is a fantastic interview. You're going to have a really good time listening to her. Uh, thank you for stopping by the bunker to spend some time with Max and I. He is super restless today, so any extra attention that he can get is good. I hope your day is going well and that you're taking care of yourself and each other. I hope that as you go back out into the world, you're giving grace to everybody around you because we are all trying to figure this shit out. For now, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Lucy Leitner. I went to, I did for, for fun, we actually, a couple years ago, we did the Mid-Atlantic CrossFit Challenge. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I traveled down there. We we got in by the lottery, my team. Like, you know, we we didn't come prepared with food. Like I like we we just we just went for the hell of it. And um and the peep and people there, I mean, I'm I was I was still I was in the master's division technically at the time even and I didn't think that most people that were competing at this thing that traveled to DC that made a whole weekend out of it we're age like 36 and older, like I was, you know, um, it just, it, it, that's just not what people that are like over 35 do, but yeah. be younger, but so many of the people there looked so old, like, just like, I don't, I mean, 
like kind of haggard looking like it was something I would expect from more like, you know, spent some time on the road with Motley Crue. Like yeah. that's, and, but I was like, they, these people don't look healthy. Like not, not at all. Like, and it wasn't like, and there were some really, really high level athletes. Some like yeah. the best in the world there. And I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about right. some of the people who were competing in the RX division, not elite. Like this just does not seem worth it. Yeah. Well, and it's uh, even for like Olympic lifting, like I just turned 49 last week and we moved me down from, and we probably should have done it a year or two ago, but I convinced my coach that I was, that I didn't need to do that, uh, to go down to four days a week instead of five. And, and, yeah. and that one day has changed fundamentally everything about my lift. I mean, I don't lift as much as I can anymore, but I'm way healthier. I have yeah. way more energy because when I was working out five days a week for an hour and a half or two hours, like at 48, I just, yeah, too much. Yeah, and like all the books that you read from people, they're like, yeah, like you don't, like you should be at four days a week. Mm -hmm. Like at this point in your life, you can't. And like I worked, one of the guys who lifts in the master's division, he's a former Olympian um, mm -hmm. named Barry. And he has like all the world record. He competed in wow. the 70s on the Olympic team. So he's, oh, like, wow. he's good. Yeah. But he's like, I lift two to three days a week. And I, you know, because he's in his late 50s. He's like, I can't lift. Yeah. Five days a week. Uh, yeah. I still, I'm still good with five days a week, but you know, shorter, shorter training, just going to class and everything. Yeah. Not, not You're doing, a little younger than me too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, so, and it'll you know, happen. Yeah. <laughs> My boyfriend's eight years older than me and he, he keeps telling me that too. Yeah. So you're out here. Are you, are you, you're not originally from Pittsburgh. Are you, are you a Pittsburgher? No. No, I, well, I've been here for more than half my life now. So now I think I can consider myself a Pittsburgher, but I'm actually, I'm from Arlington, Virginia, but I came here oh, when cool. I was 18. So you're born, um, uh, is that where you were born? Yeah, I was born in DC. Okay. And uh, do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have um, a little sister or two little sisters and a little brother. I'm the oldest. And my brother, one of my brother and my one sister are in Arlington still. And then my other little sister, my youngest one lives uh, in Queens. <laughs> so you're the oldest of four. Mm -hmm. And how, how what's the difference? Um, there's an eight year gap between me and my youngest sister. Wow. Um, yeah. My sister, Wendy's five years younger than me and my brother is two and a half years younger than me. So we're all like, we're all pretty, pretty close, like staggered in age. The only yeah. thing between me and me and Sarah, the youngest. What were you guys, what did your parents do growing up? Um, my dad growing up was uh, he worked for the Department of Defense. He was a strategic defense analyst. So he Holy would like, shit. yeah, so he would like analyze, um, you know, like trade deals to export like, you know, goods to foreign countries and things like that. He's now a professor at the National Intelligence University, which is also oh, in yeah. D.C. He teaches things like weapons of mass destruction, which he loves telling people he does. <laughs> And my mom was, um, growing up, she was a proofreader at U.S. News and World Report, and now she's oh. a copy editor at National Geographic. Oh, that well, I, I know that that magazine has undergone some changes in the last few years. National Geographic? Yeah. Yeah, they got bought by Fox, then the Fox, Fox got <laughs> bought by Disney. <laughs> yeah. so. Oh, so, it's, so it, it was a very short term. I, didn't, I don't think I knew the second thing happened. Oh, but I guess I did. Yeah. It's on the Disney Plus yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just, probably better now than when it was, because when it got bought by Fox, there were some, um, some changes that came. Yeah, and then there were more changes. 
So, I mean, it's just, yeah, I guess it's, I'm not sure about a whole lot of it, but I know, yeah, it's, it's definitely different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so what were you guys like as kids growing up? Like, were you guys all close? Like, yeah, yours is a lot. Well, I shared a room with her. So we were, so we've always been really close. The the youngest one? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we shared a room. Um, it was either that or I shared a room with. Well, I I told scary stories to my sister Wendy, and then she didn't want to share a room with me anymore. <laughs> and um, and but yeah, Sarah, it was it was it was good sharing a room with her. She was she was so quiet. She like by the time I left for college when she was ten, yeah. so it wasn't like. Um, you know, it wasn't a big deal sharing a room with her. We were kind of on different schedules and everything too. And she was such a little kid and yeah, but I, yeah, we've been close with all of them. I mean, eight years is tough to do, but I guess living in the same room, like she must, have, she, you must be her hero. <laughs> she's, she's just, she's just so, so much fun. Yeah. She's, she's a, she's a very good little sister. <laughs> But did she follow, like, did she follow you around? Like, was she was, living in the same room? I got to think there was like a bond of like, you know how little kids are yeah. with their older siblings? Like, did she follow yeah. you around? Yeah, I mean, she's also got such a personality that like she kind of would torment the older sisters. Like, <laughs> she wasn't as bad with me, but she was, she was pretty bad with Wendy, even though she thought Wendy was like the coolest, but they're just like three years apart. But she would do things like Wendy would have, like had her like assignment notebook with like a calendar in it. And then she was looking at it with her friends one day and her friends go, Wendy, what is wrong with you? You're not overweight. Why are you going to a Weight Watchers meeting? Why do you have weight loss goals in your calendar? And Wendy's like, what are you talking about? And then they look at it and she looks at it. She's like, that's Sarah. That's the younger sister, like (laughs) tormenting her, playing pranks like that. So, you know, that's, that's her personality. She still does. She still, she plays pranks on people. She makes fun of people. So she, that's, she became a a pretty tough little sister, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that (laughs) sounds like uh, that is a full, that is a, that is a total like youngest sibling thing. She was the funny one who just assumed that everything she did was like, people are going to love this. (laughs) And, the, and, and Wendy did think it was hilarious. Her friends were kind of shocked. Is that yeah. why would your sister do that to you? And Wendy's like, oh, that's just how she is. Yeah. You just like, this is just, yeah. and, and I'm guessing if she's like, cause I'm the youngest as well. Like uh-huh. she wasn't going to get in trouble. No. Yeah. No. The youngest doesn't really get in trouble. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> I definitely got in a lot more trouble than she did. <laughs> yeah. When you come in last, like the parents are both beat down, but also they're like, well, this is our last one. So like you yeah. become very, pr- like the first one, my, my oldest sister, like, you know, mm-hmm. she's like, they love her. She's very precious and all that stuff. But like, I'm the last one. <laughs> right? yeah, maybe. Yeah. So you get a little bit of that stuff. So what were yeah. you like as a kid? Oh, I was, I was a good kid. I was a character though. Um, I remember my mom said like, well, I would wear, I would wear like costume jewelry and like all of it at the same time. And some days I would wear like multiple hats, like one on top of the other, like all of my hats. And my mom dropped me off at kindergarten for my first day. And that's when she realized she's like, none of the other children dress like her. So I was a little character. Um, I, I would, you know, I would be singing and dancing and, and also, you know, being covered in dirt and uh, yeah, stuff like that. So like, as you grew up, like, like when you got to middle school and high school and stuff like that, like, what were you doing? 
But and like, um, what were your brothers and sisters doing? Um. Well, we. Were you like a jock or a nerdy kid, or like, what were you? Who um, were you? I was just. I was just kind of. I don't know. Regular, kind of eccentric. I wore my mom's old clothes from the '60s. Like when I hit middle school, I my parents gave me the White Album when I was ten. So I was like, and I I wasn't. We didn't have cable. Uh, we weren't allowed to play video games. We weren't allowed to like watch TV. And like, if we even tried to listen like to some bad pop music that other people were listening to at school, my parents would make fun of us. So like, Jesus. we <laughs> so, like we we didn't we like we didn't watch like all the other kids were watching like Melrose place and 90210. And I had never seen them. Um, we'd watch Elvis movies together and things like that. So we were kind of little anachronisms, I guess. Yeah. All of us, um, we watch Abbott and Costello movies. We watched all, all sorts of like, where we were com- just completely like my boyfriend makes fun of me for this complete knowledge gap that I have of anything pop culture from like 1970 to like 1999. It's just gone, except for Saturday Night Live. Like, that's it. (laughs) And so, like, we, um, yeah. So, I mean, I I did, I I was, you know, I would enter art contests. I played, you know, softball and, or I played baseball at the time in middle school and and basketball and swam and things like that. So, I don't know. I think I was was pretty well-rounded. But, yeah, just, I was was eccentric. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, one, your boyfriend is, Right to make fun of you for that—that that is <laughs> that is appropriate. But have you asked your parents like why didn't you let us do any of those things? Like, is that ever? I mean, because when you're growing up, that just seems normal, right? Like you're like, yeah. I don't know why all these other people do this. That's we don't. Well, no, do I actually, I I remember thinking it was kind of odd at the time, but um, a lot of it they thought was stupid, like. <laughs> You know, I remember friends coming over and trying and like, we want to, they wanted to watch full house at my parents' house and my parents, they just thought it was too stupid. And like video games, I understand, like, that's a complete waste of life. Like I'm, I'm totally on, uh, but we did play some games, but we had a Mac. So we had like yeah. these weird games that were on the Mac in the nineties. And like, no one had a Mac that I knew every, and everyone had like Nintendo and, like a like a PC, you know, and so we just always we were a little off. Like everything was a yeah. little off, and um, like we had a game that we would play called Stunt Copter, which was it didn't make any sense. And it was you have a, a helicopter above with a guy hanging off of it, and then below you had a horse and buggy, and they were traveling at slightly different speeds. And the goal was to drop the man from the helicopter sure. into the horse and buggy. So it was like two different centuries. It was like 20th century up here, and then like 18th century up here. <laughs> and you would drop the guy, but it made a better sound if you dropped the body on the horse. So we would just make you know noises with this. So those were so we still played games. They were just not what the other kids were doing. Yeah, at all. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so your parents had opinions about things. Huh? Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is dumb. We're not doing this. Like, yes. neither are you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and which, which I, which I really like now. You know. Yeah. I mean, Time, I think I kind of wish that I could have, you know, watched some of these shows and been like the other kids, but no, not, not over, not over time. And then when I, you know, when I grew up, it's, you know, we, we did things like celebrate daylight savings time and which <laughs> no one else in the world does. No. In fact, we all hate it. I know. Yeah, We <laughs> literally hate it. I know, but my dad thinks it's neat. So we celebrated it and we still do. That's- and now I've spread it to, you know, other people up here. 
it's going to be very sad when they eliminate that in a few years. Well, then we're going to have to find another bizarre occasion to celebrate. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, you should start looking now because I, I feel like in the next few years, that is going to be, it's one of the few bipartisan things happening in DC right now where everybody's <laughs> like, we don't no. operate on a farm calendar anymore. Like we don't, <laughs> and everybody's babies and dogs do not like daylight savings time. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you're in high school, and I mean, it sounds like you're both do like was it a big school or a little school? It was not very big. I wanted, I okay. think maybe like twelve hundred people. Um, my high school was like really good academically. Yeah, and it was it's just a public school, but it was like a really really good public. Yeah, I mean, school. it's in Arlington, like that's yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was. I mean, yeah, it was. It was like I had a lot of friends that had over a four GPA because they offered so many AP classes. Yeah. And I, our drama department won all the competitions and our football team was horrible. Like, you know, that, that, it was that type of place. But it was small enough that you could both be like a good student, but also like do all the sports. And like, it was a thing where everybody kind of did everything. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I had, um, I like, I was captain of softball team my senior year, but I got a scholarship to pit for academics and a lot of people like the the football team that's why they were so bad they were kids that like wound up going to ivy league schools like they were not they were not athletes they were just doing this as like you know for fun as another activity and and all that like i don't we didn't have people like you know the football team wasn't like to my knowledge like on the local tv like fans weren't coming from all over the place to watch yorktown high school football yeah it's no. interesting because I had a small town, but like we, I mean, our football team was notoriously bad, but our baseball team was always really good. Our women's sports were like super good. Like they yeah. were, that was sort of the, other than the baseball team, like that was the pride of always had a good soccer team, always huh. had a good track team, but, but it was, again, it was a small school. So like the girls that ran track also played soccer. So of course yeah. they were good because they did nothing but run yep. for a year. Right. So like, yeah. They, and they were also, you know, I think we had 170 people in our graduating class. So like, oh, wow. That's really small. Yeah. But I mean, we had a thousand people in the school. So you must have had, I mean, you must have had like 250, 280, I, something like that. Yeah. Like, maybe something like that. Yeah. I mean, you also were in a small school. Yeah. Yeah. We were not, we were not big at all. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's something charming about that because you do get to do everything. Like, yeah. I know that my dad, we had an opportunity to move to a, down in Raleigh and it was going to be like a 4,000 person school. And part of mm-hmm. the reason we, we didn't move was my dad was like, well, you're not going to get to do any of the stuff because mm-hmm. oh, you're only going to get to focus on, it's going to be like college. You yeah. get to do one thing. And if you try to do three things, you're not going to get to do anything. Exactly. And I didn't like, I didn't like that. I, like, you know, it wasn't, I mean, I was captain of the softball team because I was the only senior on the team who had been on the team who was like a starter, you know, like there were a couple other seniors on the team, but they were kind of in and out of the lineup and they yeah. had been with the program since their freshman year. So it's not like I, you know, beat out a bunch of people. I was basically captain by default. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> But there's something nice about having the opportunity to do something like that. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, um, it was great. And like the colleges didn't know that there were no other seniors on the team. It looked like I had I had earned it by merit. Yeah. Well, and I know that like my sister, who's a concert pianist, like she went to the conservatory for her college, and oh. she has said repeatedly, like she hated gym. Like no, like this was a joke in the house. Like the yeah. only non A that she ever got was in gym, and it was every <laughs> year she got it, didn't get an A. But, you know, as she's gotten older, she's like, I wish I could do that because that's how you make friends as an adult. 
Like if you have to be able to do something, like you have to be able to do something athletically when you move to a new town to meet people. Otherwise yeah. it's really hard to meet somebody who's 40. Yeah. Yeah. To be your friend. Like you can't just walk up to people in a bookshop and be like, hi, you want to get a drink and be my friend? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terrify everyone. Yeah. But like you go to CrossFit or you go to a gym or like I've lifted an Olympic lifting gym now. Like, well, there's a hundred people in there that are just like me. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. It's very, very easy to meet folks. So when, as you are coming to like graduate, like what are you thinking about college? Like what's your, what's the um, plan? Well, I saw some schools and I I was just like looking forward to going to college and I saw Pitt and I thought it was like the most fun looking place ever. Like I saw like Forbes Avenue in Oakland in like the year 2000, which was still super cool. Like there was the head shop on the corner. There were, you know, music stores and, and things like that. It wasn't all corporate like it is now. And um, I thought it was cool. And I, I just filled out, there was like a one, it was rolling admissions and I came like right at the very beginning of my senior year. And it was like one page front and back was the application. And I sat in the office with a friend of mine who, who she and her mom took me to this, to see the campus. And, um, we filled out our applications front and back. And within two weeks we were both accepted with scholarships. Really? Yeah. She didn't wind up going. Um, but like, it took like a ton of pressure off me senior year. And then I applied to some other schools and, and then wound up just choosing Pitt because I really liked it. And that was, that seemed like the place for me, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was, I would like, I enrolled as an art major because I was good at painting and stuff. And I, I did that, but like, I wasn't going to play sports um, in, in college. Yeah. I had, I had absolutely no idea. The one thing I knew that it was that I liked, I liked art. <laughs> that was it. And I like a good program. Art. Or do you even, did you even know? Were you just like, yeah, I'll just go there and do art. They had a program <laughs> um, and, and I liked, I liked reading and things like that. I, I was good at English class. Like I was, I was really good at that. Like I, and I came in with a whole bunch of AP credits too. So that left my options open a lot. So like, I didn't have to take, I didn't have to take math. I didn't have to take a foreign language, like all of that. So um, yeah, I, that's what I, that's what I, I knew if I, I just, I just wanted to go to college. Like I didn't really know why. <laughs> So like your parents didn't like you guys, that hadn't been a thing where you guys sat down and were like, well, what do you want to do? They were just like, yeah, you're going to school. Great. Pit. Sounds good. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like my parents, my dad has what three master's degrees and a PhD. They're all in all sorts of stuff. Like he wasn't, my dad wasn't like decided on what he was going to do when, when he was like, you know, 17 by any means. And like my mom started out like, you know, at one point she was in a PhD program in, in French. And she's also, you know, got a master's and met my dad in the poli sci department of, of the grad school that they were at. So like they, you know, so it wasn't like, they weren't like pushing me toward any sort of career. I mean, I was going to go to college. That was the one thing that was. So like, it was like, did all of the siblings go to college? So this was like, that was, it's just interesting that they have opinions about pop culture, but weren't also like up in your business about what to do with your life. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Check out new episodes Mondays and Fridays for a wide variety of topics and news episodes. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rage on.
No, yeah, they weren't. They had, I mean, they had some things that they thought that we'd be, be good at. Like, um, but no, they didn't, they weren't pushing us into, into any, anything. They wanted us to do what, what we wanted to do. As long as it was in college. Yeah, they definitely wanted us to go to college. Like that was, you know, and it it made sense for all of us too. Like all of us, we were, you know, we all had, we all had good grades and we're all very good. We were all very good academically. So you didn't have anything else to do. You couldn't watch TV or play games. So you better be good academically. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise that'd have been a waste of a lot of free time. I know. Well, we had a ton of free time, but we were more like outside playing. That's what I mean. Like, like, yeah. yeah. Like we did, we did a lot of stuff that didn't involve sitting, sitting around as much. And we watched movies. Like we were allowed to watch, you know, we had a lot of movies we watched over and over. Like if, I mean, I have a lot of movies memorized that because we watch the same things like Wayne's world. The whole family has the entirety of Wayne's world, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, things like that completely memorized. <laughs> so. it's, I now want to talk to your parents and just be like, well, why is full house stupid? But Wayne's world is not no. because, because I know there's a reason I, I suspect that they're like, here's why. Yeah, they yeah. don't have a reason. I never specifically asked them because then seeing full house, I did agree. This is stupid. And Wayne's world is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't even understand the delineation between those two. Uh, so you go to college, you don't really know what you want to do. You sign yeah. up for art. Like, how does that go? Um, not. I mean, fine. Uh, I I don't have an art brain. I realized, like, I kept turning in paintings of Gene Simmons and and like, and they were really good Gene Simmons. You're making album covers and they want fine art. Yeah. And they want like, and, and other people, like I remember people turning in like these like abstract things and they're like, these are Psalms. And it's like, okay, what's a Psalm? (laughs) (laughs) And they have these things with like meaning and all that. I was like, here's Gene Simmons again. Um, (laughs) Here in my senior project for my sculpture class was a marionette show of a kiss concert. So I, I made all my little kiss dolls. I had them flying in. I had pyrotechnics. I had, um, I had music. I had brought three friends who weren't in the art department in to help me make this thing happen. Paul Stanley broke in half when he was flying in, but it was, you know, I had a drum riser made of old cigarette packs and the drum, like the cymbals were made of like yingling bottle caps. And, and I got an A plus on that. Like my, I was my, about to ask, like, they didn't know what to do with you. That, that professor was really cool. Yeah. Some of the other ones just, it depended on the professor that I had, but yeah. like my, but I also enrolled in like, um, in it was some writing classes. Cause like what, you know, I had some, I had all these credits, like what was like, I had credits coming in. I could have, if I just me, if I just stayed with like an art major, I could have graduated in three years. And I didn't want to do that because it was really fun. And I liked being in college. And so I added a, a double major of writing. Cause I realized like I was pretty good at it. Like yeah. when I, when I started and then, so, yeah. So then, then that became much more of the focus was it's also hard to make a career out of gene simmons marionette dolls i know like and you know simmons other than team america world police like there's not yeah. a giant well they didn't work either like i wasn't like i mean they just kind of flew in like i had yeah. strings on them but they didn't like i yes. don't know weren't like articulating dolls or anything like that well you know it's funny because when when they did that movie they thought it was going to be really easy and i don't know if you've ever heard interviews but they were like 
well, that's a nightmare. We'll never do that again. We couldn't get yeah. any of the puppets to do any of the things that we wanted them to do. Like, it's, as it turns out, it's really hard to do oh, that. Right. And we did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was hard, especially when you make like leather pants. Like, how is that, how is that going to move? Like, yeah. It's not. There's no. zero chance that's going to move at all. Exactly. So, uh, as you start doing, like, what's the writing degree? Is it just like a creative writing program or like, what's the, what's the deal? What are you doing? Um, Pitt actually has good writing program from like, it was, it was, they have really good professors there in the writing department. Um, and uh, creative nonfiction is what I wound up doing. And it was, that is really good there. Like they have Lee Gutkin who does like creative nonfiction magazine. He was, yeah. I had him for a class. Um, Jean I mean, Marie that's Lund. where the creative nonfiction thing comes out of, right? Like yeah. on a lot of those people at Pitt folks. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, Jean Marie Laskus, who wrote the um, concussion book that the Will Smith movie was based oh, on. Yeah. She was my, actually my professor for like my nonfiction one class. And she was like she was wonderful. Like yeah. that was, we had just really, really good professors. Um, I, I was definitely like, that's where I kind of, you know, figured out what I wanted to do and what I was actually, what I was actually good at. Um, and I added also like a certificate program in film studies. So, so you just did the whole, well, I mean, that's a fairly well-rounded, like mm-hmm. art writing and film studies this is a pretty yeah. well-rounded undergraduate program. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, I mean, it was cool. It was, uh, it was everything. All my classes were interesting, mostly. <laughs> so. I mean, so what was the plan when you graduated? Like you got all these things like. Be a writer of any capacity. Like was that the whole plan? Like you weren't much. like, I'm going to go to New York and do this. Like, or I like, here's what I want to do. Or you just like, I want to be a writer. That's yeah. what I want to do. Yeah, that was it. It didn't really matter where. I actually moved back to D.C. Uh, right after college, yeah. and I got a job um, as a fact checker at U.S. News and World Report. I'd actually worked there. I'd worked there in high school as a as a copy clerk, and I'd interned there when I was in college, helping out with like the the college, the annual college guide, and everything. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. oh, that's yeah. their big one. That was yeah, that was huge. Yeah, that was that was really big. So, do they still do that? Is that even around anymore? Yeah, yeah, they still do that. Um, from what I've, I heard that the whole magazine went digital. Like you could tell, oh, like when my mom right. was, yeah, when my mom, when I was a kid, they were, they had a whole building in DC. Yeah. The play, it was huge. And then by the time I worked there in high school, they had like two floors yeah. of a different office building. And then by the time I worked there after college, they had like lost like half of that space too. Yeah. 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 I mean, at the time, like, you know, I've I talked about this on the show before. Like you didn't make college visits when I grew up. Like that was not a thing you did. Like the U S news more report thing came yep. out and it's like, well, let me look and see what are the good colleges. And like, that was for like, you know, first generation people. It's like, well, I'm, this one seems pretty good. Like I'm gonna yeah. go there. That's good. Yeah. That's how I narrowed down my choices. I looked at like the, I looked at the stats too, because I didn't want to go to someplace that was like, I wanted to go someplace that was like evenly split male, female. I didn't want to go to a place that had like a lot of Greek life. Like I, you know, and, and I wanted to go to a place that had like, you know, big enough student body. So like I, yeah, that's what I looked at. That was the first thing. That's how I narrowed down my choices was looking at like the, the metrics in the back of that book. Yeah. I remember like, you know, I, you know, these days, like all my friends are like, they take, they're like, we're going on 10 college visits. And I'm like, motherfucker, like you went on none and you're fine. Like, why are you spending spring break driving all over the country? Like, yeah, it'll be fine. Like, just, exactly. it, like maybe visit the one you think you're going to go to, but like, maybe like yeah. so when you leave, you go to DC and you get this job and what are you doing there? Um, 
fact checking, reading articles, calling like calling sources and confirming like, you know, um, you know, looking up, looking up things that were there in the article, you like, um, you know, basic facts that were in there. Like if someone so was were you on the fact check desk, is that like what you did? Like that was yeah. the, and how long did you do that? Uh, five to six months before I was laid off and they had a massive round of layoffs about like that were starting when I was, maybe three months in a lot of the editors, a uh, whole ton of people were, were laid off there. Um, and what year is this 2006 or 2005, sorry, 2005. So that's, you graduated in, in 2004 mm-hmm. or five, something 2005. Like that. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. this is now you're like four or five iterations into the layoffs. Cause they really started in the nineties. So like you were there at the end. My mom had been laid off before because they cut all of the proofreaders. Yeah. And they cut that entire department, and then she was brought back as a, as a, a copy editor there. Yeah. And that's how she wound up at, at National Geographic, actually, is because so many people who were laid off from U.S. News wound up at National Geographic. And, and so, inter- like, it, you know, having been a journalist, and, like, I came out in 94, so I've sort of been through part of the reason I left the yeah. industry. I'm like, fuck yeah. this. Like, every three months or every three years, it's like, whoa. Yep. And then you yep. find out, like, it's less so now, but like when I came out, the price of ink depended on trees in Canada. Really? So like, yeah, like the way, like ink and paper is like the was the big driving force of cost outside of personnel. So you like suddenly you become an expert in like what what's the trees like in Canada this year? Yeah, you know, like oh do I need God. to start looking for a new job? <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember U.S. News. Like I, there were. It, it seemed like there were more HR people, the people who yeah. were doing the high, the firing. And I remember the, there were these there, these three women, and they we were in Georgetown in DC, so like super cool area. And they would come in with shopping bags from all like the designer stores all the time, and then yeah. they'd bring you in and and like an editor who'd been there adding real value to the magazine, yeah. or a graphic designer, or a photographer, or some of these people that like really did the work of making the magazine go. But they kept the HR people and clearly yeah. gave them raises because they were out like shopping at designer stores every day. So I don't know. It was, I mean, that was my last, I, I'd already been laid off there, by the way. I got laid off in 2001 before I came to college, which I wasn't <laughs> that mad about because I was going to leave in three months anyway. But so, still. yeah, but like I'd been laid off from US News twice before I was 20, but yeah, um, before I was 23. I think yeah. I was 22 the second time I was laid off. It's such an interesting phenomenon because... Um, when as soon as things went corporate and they were no longer like locally owned or when they became part of conglomerates, it, it was a bottom line industry. And and what's really frustrating is that most magazines still made money, but when you're owned by a larger entity, you needed your margin to be 20%. So mm-hmm. 8% wasn't enough. So even yes. though they'd still be profitable or still making money, they weren't profitable enough. And mm-hmm. then they start cutting all those people that have been there for 20 years. And yep. you're like, well, this is not good. This is not a long-term strategy. No, absolutely not. Because you're cutting the people that are the reason people you have your customers. Yeah. And it also drove me crazy that they were like, oh, the internet's killing things. And we're all like, the internet's not killing things. Like no. it's, it's you needing a 20% profit in an industry that only has a 7% profit margin. Like yeah. the only way to make that 20 is through cuts. And you can only do that so many times before yep. it just craters into nothing. Uh-huh. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it was a frustrating business. So did you get yeah. out of journalism? Like, is that, did you try to keep going with that? Or were you like, no, fuck this? Um, 
I was never really like pushing to be a journalist necessarily. <laughs> I just wanted to like write in some capacity and I really didn't know what was out there. And it was kind of a weird time too, because it was like when the internet was starting. So like to take off in terms of like people writing like the articles, the, it, was, it was the era of the SEO and the article writing yeah. and that type of thing where, um, and so I actually, I wound up getting, it was really hard for me to find anything. I was, I was like struggling for months to find something. And I finally found a place back in Pittsburgh. And so that's when I, I moved back up here and, um, and was doing some really shady things. Like I was hired as a writer, but it was like, I was, it was one of those where it was like, yeah, we're, we're top ranked for all these like real estate investment terms on Google. And so they'd have like, it was before like websites were responsive and could fill the whole screen. And so you'd have these like margins on the side that were white. And so I'd have to like write random keywords in white over the white, like blocks on the side. I, I have, it was, it was, it was bizarre. I was sent to the owner of the company. It was a really small company owned by like a really young guy. And he brought, he made me go work at his parents' house where they had a dial up internet connection. (laughs) So I could have a, I could have a different IP address every time I posted some spam listings on Craigslist. Yeah. I was doing that too. I was, I was, uh, I didn't know why I still didn't, I didn't understand what I was doing. I still, to this day, don't really get what was going on there. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, yeah, my early career was spent doing black hat SEO and <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Cause I was, you know, I started writing online, I think around 95 or 96 mm-hmm. and you know, then I went to wired and, and, and we were doing that stuff and it was, it really was around that like 2000, it was after the crash, like mm-hmm. after 2000, 2002, three, that that mm-hmm. weird, like I used to rant yep. about SEO stuff all the time. Cause I'm like, I understand search engine optimization, but that is not what people are doing. Like no. they are totally gaming this system. They are. Yeah. There was an entire industry of people I that know. were just like, and it, it could be disreputable places, but also there were reputable places that were doing that. And we were just like, well, this doesn't seem like it's right. No, it's completely <laughs> fraudulent, <laughs> but it persisted for a good Good. quite a decade but it was a long yeah. time of like mm-hmm. yeah and like you'd go to like i'm part of south by southwest i'm on the board and like you know you'd go to things and people would be talking about seo and you're like i'm not sure we should have you here yeah you know like <laughs> what you've just said doesn't actually sound like seo it sounds like scamming the system yes yes yeah. that's that's pretty much what it was <laughs> yeah but it's also like you know at the time it was if you're not into that stuff i'm sure you were like this doesn't seem right but i don't really know what the fuck i'm doing so and there was no other jobs yeah it was a job it paid me yeah and so what do you do after that like when you leave because i'm assuming you're not there very long no, I was there for maybe six months. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I went to I went to a, um, an ad agency that did um, that did like ads when you were on hold over the phone. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and that would have actually been fine, but it was a really bad environment. It was a small it was a small environment where the like office manager was the company president and owner's wife. Oh shit. And, yeah, that was not that was not good. I mean, if I was in, if five minutes of my time were missing from my timesheet, she came in and screamed at me. That's fun. Yeah, and it was interesting to like having to itemize all of your time, not just as like billable time for the yeah. client, but just while you were there, because 
Yeah, it's just not, that's just not, not very helpful when you have a lot of work to do to be spending 20 minutes a day filling out a timesheet. So, right. Well, particularly was, like as a writer, like if you're trying to be creative, like telling somebody be creative from 830 to 530 is the absolute positive way to make sure they are not creative at all. It, yeah. And looking <laughs> over their shoulder. Yeah. And, yeah. What's that? What's that? Why weren't you doing something here? It's like, fuck. When I worked at Technology Review, our art director used to, uh, and I used to tell my students this all the time, he'd give everybody little notebooks and he'd be like, today we're just going to wander around the city and I want you to guys have just just whatever inspires you to do stuff. And it used to drive the edit, like it drove people like us crazy because we're like, yeah. God damn it, there's work to be done. And they're like, yeah. this is work. Yeah. Like, this is part of the creative work. Like, yeah. uh, meanwhile, as writers, we're like, I'm going to take a nap. We had no compunction about that, but like these fuckers yeah. out there like sketching in their sketchbook were like, no. No. <laughs> but it's all part of the, right? That's all part of the process. So yeah. um, how long were you there? You couldn't have been oh, there long either. No, I was only there for like three months before I quit and took, and it also paid very, very little. Well, that, and, so what it lacked in, what it lacked in personality, it made up for not paying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There were so many, so many selling points of that job. And so I went to, I actually just went to like a placement agency and was like, I just need something that's going to pay me better at this yeah. point because doing this. So I wound up just doing like, like some, like, I don't know, administrative customer service stuff at a title company paid me better. And it was actually, it sucked, but because it was really boring, but it was also at a title company right before the real estate crash too, which was awesome. And, um, <laughs> but so, but it was, it was there. I was sitting in a, in like an office safety meeting and it was a stupid corporate thing where they're talking about all these things that can happen, like that never happened in Pittsburgh, like tornadoes and earthquakes oh, yeah, and things right. like that. And they're and then they, they talked about like, what was going to happen if like, there was an outbreak of like work for workplace violence and they tell you what to do. And it was basically like barricade yourself in a conference room. And I'm sitting there like, why do I need this lecture? Like I've seen night of the living dead, like this. And then I was like, Oh, this could be really funny to make like, like kind of a, like what would happen if zombies invaded like a corporate office and the employees had to treat them like fend it off, fend them off using like all these tactics that they <laughs> talked about in the safety meeting. And so that was actually where I came up with my first book. So, and a lot of it was based on like, cause it was really like a satire and critique of like corporate culture, um, but with zombies. And, and so there was like a whole, so I, I, I spent a lot of my time there because there wasn't a lot to do when yeah. the market started crashing that I would just be sitting there all day. So I'd be sending emails like to my personal address with just observations of like office culture and how these things could manifest themselves if there was like an actual like, you know, really bad situation, like life or death situation <laughs> that happened. And you still have these stupid drama. You still have the backstabbing. You still have like all of this, like, you know, all the ridiculous things that you notice in, in you know, Right. office behavior and office politics. So it's some good did come of that. Well, and it's, you know, I mean, Einstein, he came up with E equals MC squared working yeah. in the patent office. Like, yeah. it's like, I feel like those kinds of dead end places where you just have lots of time to think about stuff is mm -hmm. again, it's like a writer taking a nap, like, Oh, yeah. I'm just going to like, I can do my job very quickly. And now mm -hmm. I'm going to just think about what else I want to do. Exactly. Exactly. I was at some of my most creative. I had like, you know, lines of dialogue, one-liners, like all sorts of things that I would email myself. It, it was, you know, it was great. And how long were you there? Oh, I was there for a little over a year. Oh, so you finally made it a year in a job. So it took yeah. you five jobs and then you finally made it a year. I made it a year, yeah. yeah. 
And then I quit that and went to grad school. So <laughs> what did you go to graduate school for? That one I went for journalism. And it was oh. just mostly because I was looking for something like I just was like, this isn't working out. Like, you know, I think I, I need to do something, you know, learn, learn something more specific. So, so I went for, I, I looked at like what the programs in Pittsburgh had, I wasn't going to move. Um, and so, and Point Park had like a good journalism program. I applied there, I got in, and then I started like in the fall and got a gig working as a school photographer. So I could go to day classes. Like, um, I would do like, uh, you know, kids photos for, you know, when they had picture day and all that. Oh, really? Yeah. Photograph sports teams because you could work like crazy hours. Like I'd have to be up at four o'clock in the morning sometimes and drive to West Virginia and take this, but it was, I mean, it was good for, for the hours. Um, and, and, and enabling me to go to school. And that's actually when I wrote my first book was when I had that job, I took an internship at city paper on the A and E desk. So I was doing all sorts of stuff and that, that worked out really well. I liked that that time what uh how do you get a job as photographer i've heard nothing about you taking photos up until just now didn't really need that much experience the <laughs> cameras i mean there were some people who were very good photographers who were like legit photographers that were there but other people just came in and those were the people who like more advanced within the company but a lot of it was like you know younger people just starting out people that were in school people that had like you know maybe it was like a job for someone whose kids were like a woman whose kids were getting old enough that she could take a job that would like had really flexible hours. And, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it didn't, I like, it helped that I had that art background. So I, you know, I understood like, you know, colors and, and, you know, um, composition and stuff like that. But yeah, that was, so you didn't really need, but you, and you'd had training. Like we were in training for like a month, learning how to use the cameras, how to okay. set everything up. Everything was like pretty much like a lot of the knowledge that you have about using those cameras that they have, isn't really going to be applicable to like any other cameras. Cause you had some very specific settings and processes that you use. Yeah. So all of that was through city paper. No, no, that was through, that was a, just a completely different job. I was at life touch photography. They have like, they do most of them. Oh, so they would, they trained you on their stuff to go do. So you were like an independent contractor with the company or were you? No, I was actually an employee. An employee. Yeah, I was an employee there. And I, I applied to the, <laughs> I applied to the A&E desk at City Paper. That was just totally different. So I was just, I was writing there. Oh, uh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So that was my first, like. While you're in graduate school. Well, I was in grad school. Yeah. You yeah. had yeah. a similar graduate school experience. Oh, yeah. I was at, well, I was at Berkeley, like, and it was a top four programs so it was like super competitive to get in but like I was poor so like I worked at Wired during the day I worked on the facilities department where I painted and planted shit like yeah. any odd job I could take and then I took classes at night because yeah. it was the only time I could and then I do homework till like three o'clock in the morning and go to yeah. sleep and wake up and be at Wired at eight o'clock like it's San Francisco yeah. in 1998 99 or I guess yeah 98 it's like uh, rent control just ended it was expensive Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, so I need to fucking work as many jobs as I possibly can to get yeah. this thing. And I mean, that's when I was writing working steps, the the first book too. So it like the whole time it was very, I mean, I was very productive during, during yeah. that time with the weird hours and everything. So but this gets back to the discussion we had about being youthful energy. Mm, true. Like, the very older true. you get, like the more I'm like, Oh God, like I get done with my day and I'm like, I think I'm done with my day. <laughs> you know i'm like i should write but i'm like my brain is not going to write anything yeah i, I think back to my early 20s it's like fuck i would go to the bar and i had a palm pilot 
is the Palm I-705. It was the first Palm that connected to the internet. And I got a fold-out keyboard, and I would literally sit at the bar, and I wrote my first book on a Palm I-705, like, in <laughs> bars on this fold-out keyboard. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's crazy. And now I'm like, oh, I take my computer out to the bar every once in a while. I'm like, nah, fuck this. It's too dark. It's loud. I can't do yeah. anything. <laughs> <laughs> so how old are you when you're doing this? Um, Like, it? late 20s? Mid mid twenties, yeah. Mid-20s. So this would have been. I started grad school. I think I was twenty five. Yeah. And I graduated at twenty, like right before I turned twenty seven. Yeah, and that's when I got degree my is it? What's the degree? What's the actual degree? Masters of Journalism and Mass Communications. So it's an MJ. MA. MA. Yeah. So like mine was an MJ. Like ours was a professional degree. So it's oh, an, okay. So yeah, no, I'm was... always interested, like what those actual degrees are, because journalism yeah. is such a practitioner thing. Yeah. And I mean, it was really cool at Point Park because, you know, they would, everything was very hands-on and practical, except for one course. I had to do some like a media analysis class that was only required because that was the course that the dean took or that the dean uh, taught and everyone hated it. And, but everything else was like, I was doing real articles. I took, you know, an investigative journalism class where I did, you know, investigations of my own, my own choosing. I wrote articles for the Trib at the time um, because they would have this thing called the Point Park News Service also where, which is still going. And, and one of my professors who I'm still in touch with now um, was a, uh, an investigative reporter for the trip. And he would get like, I worked there on election night a couple times, yeah. um, helping with the coverage there. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, we had a lot of like practical experience from the connections to the trip. And, and then my time at city paper was also really helpful. I mean, it's how it worked, right? That's why I'm always interested in like what the masters look like because people mm-hmm. that get their PhDs in journalism, it's in the communication department. It's always yeah. the study of journalism. Yeah. And it, that's weird to me. Like we literally in my graduate program took, I mean, it was all practical. There was no yeah. fucking qualitative or quantitative mm-hmm. anything. Yep. Your first year, every your first semester, everybody takes the same class. I've talked about this on the show. It's from eight in the morning to 5 p.m., five oh days a week. You are assigned a story at like 10 a.m. You have to turn it in by five. And the wow. next day, they would just randomly choose some things, read them in front of this class of eight people, and yeah. then critique you while they're reading it. Wow. Every that's day. Rough. That's and rough. It, and if you didn't publish something in a reputable place, you're by the end of the first semester, you were not, you were kicked out. Wow. Yeah. That's and tough. I, yeah, it's like, it's the weirdest graduate school experience ever. There was yeah. no, like let's sit around and talk about what this is. It's like, fuck yeah. it. Here's what journalism is. Do it. Go yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had some of that, but it wasn't as intense. And we had like the media law, the ethics, like yeah, those yeah. classes too and everything. But yeah, it was, we had some, like we were so, you know, we, we did get, like I did get a bunch of stuff published while I was in grad school, but it wasn't nearly that intense. In the same way you had the creative nonfiction stuff, like Clay Felker, was at Berkeley. Like Clay Felker founded like New York magazine. He founded like wow. eight magazines. His wife is uh was Gail Sheeney, like who is a famous journalist. So like you're just kind of walking around and you're like, oh. That's cool. Yeah. When like Clay yeah. tells you to do something, you're like, okay. Yeah. Like it doesn't cool. matter how good you think you are, you're like, well, yeah. I'm just okay. gonna listen to what you've said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's nice to have those people around. Yeah. And so having people that can help you through that is like, oh shit, this is very, very helpful to know. 
Yeah. Oh, extremely. And just, and, and having people that, you know, are so good and so accomplished in their fields and yeah. like taking, so you really, you remember what they told you and when they have, and then when they had confidence in you, like that was just, that's just huge for, yeah. you know, your ability to like believe in what you can do in the, in your career. So yeah. Cool. So what do you do when work, like, what do you do when you finish working steps? Like, cause you're sort of doing all this stuff. Like when do you, do you finish it before graduate school or in graduate school? No. Um, I guess, I guess like the year later, but I think, I don't remember exactly when I finished it, but I kind of held on to it for a while and didn't really know what to do with it. I was started like looking at agents and then I was like, yeah, it's, it's probably not the way to go, but I found like horror publishers. And one thing that's great about writing in genres is how many of these small press publishers there are of these independent yeah. publishers. So I found one that said that he like that they were looking for horror, but also humor. And so I submitted it there a couple of days later, this was like toward the end of 2011, heard back, um, said, send me your manuscript. Now I had sent it. The only people that read it were my family and they had given me like feedback. Um, my brother had been to like a screenwriting program at UCLA that he did. So he had a really good concept of like, you know, how a plot should move to get like maximum attention. So yeah. he got, gave me and like, you know, he's like, no, you need to raise the stakes here. So I had good feedback from him. My parents were, read it my mother copy edited it like she so it was a very professional manuscript that was sent that was submitted and so it was the very beginning of 2012 that I got the acceptance and um to Necro Publications which is based out of Florida and so yeah so that was my you know that was my first one I wasn't like I, I wasn't much of like a social media person back then I did like I I was working for like um this little like PR article farming, um, that, that type of like, you know, agency content agency at the time I had a PR list of local contacts that I just, from them that I just used for my own books. So I could, like, <laughs> a lot of, you know, promoting by myself. Um, yeah. and then it was sent to like a lot of horror publications. I did some like local horror conventions. Luckily at the time, zombies happened to be really big at that time. Like, cause that was when the walking dead was starting and all that. So there was a lot of, there was some interest in zombies. I was able to get my, you know, some interest from a bunch of publications to write yeah. about it, but yeah. And when it's nice to have like both, you know, cause typically family are terrible at helping you with stuff, but to actually have a mom who's a professional proofreader and copy yes. editor and a brother that has been through, a film program yes. is super Very helpful in shaping all of that stuff. Uh-huh. It was extremely helpful. So yeah, it was, um, and it was set at a pharmaceutical company and my dad was briefly the president of, um, the American branch of a Ukrainian pharmaceutical company. So I had like real insight and he like, he toured facilities of like how they made the, the stuff. And that was actually, that was kind of a motivation for me to set it at a pharmaceutical sure. company, but also it just made sense if you were going to have the CEO of a company abducting um, homeless people off the street and injecting them with something that would turn them into zombies so he could use them as slave labor in his factory. It made sense that it would be pharmaceuticals because that's who would develop something mm -hmm. like that. So yeah, so that was my first one. <laughs> so it was a weird family affair is what you're telling me. Yeah, it usually is. <laughs> Is it, so are you guys still like, do they still get involved in the stuff that you do today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I, my, my group of beta readers is my brother and my two younger sisters. Really? Mm 
those are my that's my first crew of readers now none of them read outrage level 10 before publishing because actually what i did with that one like they read an early 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 draft of it like and um and then it had totally changed and i just sent it along to my publisher last or october of 2019 and said like i haven't touched this in like two three years i'm done with this i don't like let me know what you think. Like, you know, here's, and he came back like a couple months later with feedback said, you know, it, it just made some things to change that turned out to be really, really, really helpful feedback. And then I resubmitted it and it, uh, like I rewrote it, like something that took me like seven, eight years to come up with the first draft. Cause I would write like off and on, off sure. and on, abandon it for a long time. And, um, that I rewrote the whole thing in three weeks and um, resubmitted it. And then that's, and then about a, a year after resubmitting it is when it was released. So how does it, how did it work? Like when you submit that, why did it take you? Cause it's a small, it was a small press, right? Like it's sort of a genre press. Was yeah. it just because it was a one or two person operation and it took a while with the other books they were publishing or. Yeah. Wanting it to wanting the time for it to get out there, build some buzz. And then a lot of, yeah. And then so other they would do promotional stuff. Like they would get it out to horror the stuff before it was out. Mm-hmm. So they were really operating like an actual press. Like they were trying to do some of that behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, that's what a lot of these, these, these um, small presses do um, that they do. They, they get things into, and now with all these like independent book reviewers, they'll get it out to people who they'll like use like more of an influencer marketing tactic where they'll send yeah. it to people who will review it on Goodreads and Amazon and things like that, but also post about it on Instagram, get it into people who run like book clubs and things like that. Yeah. So, well, I think genre groups do that. I mean, the small and independent presses are oftentimes mm-hmm. not equipped to do that kind of stuff. But I know like horror and romance in particular are two yeah. that are like have such big, huge, very specific followings of readers mm-hmm. that I think it's easier for those groups to like actually reach yes. larger numbers of people. Absolutely. It is a huge advantage for horror because that has a very tight knit community. And so. like a bunch of conferences too. Like there's just a shitload of like so many. writer. Con- yeah. Like so like every, I feel like every time I open up Instagram, they're like, here's the Southwest region, blah, blah, horror thing. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't even fucking know what this is. And my whole career yeah. has been writing. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and there's so many of these sub genres too. Yeah. that if you fall in with the two, with people who are like, um, I'm finding most people interested within like the splatterpunk genre, because that is not, it's, it's very, it's like, it started out like in the eighties and it's not necessarily like scary, scary. I, I, like, you know, it's, it's, it's more counterculture infused. It can be yeah. funny. Like I'm reading a book right now that's getting a lot of hype that is so, so similar to working stiffs down to a pun in the title, the way it's set up, the way it's written, the using a different, a different chapter from every character's perspective. Mm-hmm. It's so similar to that, that it, I think there's just a lot more freedom in that. And people want like something that's funny and not, and like it, one big thing in that genre is really creative death scenes and things like that. Yeah. Well, it's the Friday the 13th stuff, right? Like I went to see all of those movies and like, by the time you're on like the fourth one, literally you're going to cheer for the death. Like I need to see 10 really creative and just absolutely batshit crazy deaths. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that is, there's like, there is definitely like, um, it is important to write batshit crazy stuff with it. And which is so much fun to write. Like, 
it's just it's just really fun and it doesn't take itself too seriously because like i'm honestly not a big horror reader like i don't I don't read, I don't read that stuff generally. Like I'm not a big Stephen King fan. I find a lot of it to be like anything that has even like the hint of goth stuff just drives me crazy. So like, I mean, I read crime stuff. I read like, like I, I, I like, you know, the hard boiled stuff. I, I love like, I don't know, Jim Thompson and Don Winslow and things like that. That's what I read for fun. (laughs) And uh, not, not vampire books. Yeah. Unless they're funny, <laughs> so well, and I, you know, I when I go on hikes and stuff, I oftentimes listen to audiobooks and I'll listen to like apocalyptic sci-fi stuff. And yeah. I had to stop because so much of it, like, once you get into like the fifth book in a series, mm-hmm. it so oftentimes just becomes murder porn, where it's yeah. like four pages of just like, let me explain how I stuck this knife in this person's eye, and I'm like, that I don't come for the graphic stuff. I come mm-hmm. like. I'm coming for Jason to grab a woman in a sleeping bag and slam her into a tree. And I'm like, yeah, oh, shit's funny. Exactly. Right? Like, but exactly. like four pages of like you explaining how the eyeball came out. I'm like, yeah. mm, no, that is not, it's that's murder porn. Like I don't need that. Yeah. I don't, I'm not, I'm not into that either. I'm yeah. like, I, I like it when there's like a humor element. Like I think there's a line from the, one of my favorite lines ever about describing like a, a murder or death scene was from Sin City. Uh-huh. Um, where he where he goes, he doesn't. She doesn't quite cut his head off. She makes a Pez dispenser out of him. Yeah, like, I love that. To me, that's yeah. like that's that's like the perfect line. And yeah. Um, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, so it, I mean, and it's difficult. I think, uh, particularly in the genre stuff, because there's so many people. There's so many outlets to write it now, mm-hmm. and there's so much of it out there that when I find stuff that I do like, I tend to do a deep dive into it because mm-hmm. you do just see people that are not artful in that practitioner stuff who, who it ends up being just about the graphic nature of the thing. And I'm but like, well, that's yeah. not the point of any of this stuff. No, like, no, no. Yeah. And I, I don't like, I mean, a lot of like horror stuff I don't really watch. Yeah. I, oh yeah. Hostel or, or Saw or something like that. Oh, absolutely Those not. I can't stand, I yeah. can't stand anything. To me, that's murder yeah. porn. Like that is, is just... And, Torture porn. Yeah. To me, a perfect violent ending is the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I've not seen that. Oh, that's great. You oh, is that it. when he's walking, they're walking up to, the, how does it end? It ends with them walking up to the household? You'll have to see it. I don't want to ruin it for okay. you. Well, I, I read Maybe. spoilers before I watch stuff. So. Okay. Well, it's, I don't want to ruin it for anyone that's listening because it's so, it's so good. But I'll say like most Tarantino death death scenes, like, you yeah. know, and, and when, when Tarantino does something, like that's kind of what, I would like that, that to yeah. me, is perfect. like, yeah, because most of the time, other than reservoir dogs, which was a little torture porny, mm-hmm. um, like, but like most of his stuff is like goofy camp stuff. Yes, like, exactly. At the that, end of the day. Yes. That I love. <laughs> yeah, I can watch, uh, dusk till dawn repeatedly yeah. just because it's like goofy and like everybody gets the comeuppance that they should get. Yes. That's what's so perfect. That's what, yeah. like, what he did, like, you know, the end of Inglorious Bastards and things like yeah. that, like that, you know, that's, that's wonderful. I, yeah. That actually turned out to be one of my favorite Tarantino films and I did not think it was going to be. I didn't really like it the first time I saw it. And then I saw it again and had a totally different opinion. Yeah. I don't I know feel, why. I feel like he is just, well, he, he's, he has a very specific voice. And if you catch it on the wrong day, you can be like, well, I can see why this is not something that's for everybody's bailiwick. Yeah. Um, but having grown up watching like 
I was just reading something about Elvira, Mistress of the Darkness, mm-hmm. the other day, and I'm like, well, I grew up watching that. Like, yeah. and like, how great that she made a career out of just totally being campy, vampy. I and know. Like, like, what a great gig that must be to just be beloved for like. For making stupid jokes about yeah, being weird, yeah, and like yeah. absolutely playing on every trope and everything that yeah. exists in the world, and like she's sixty something and still doing it, and I'm like, yeah, I'd watch her on TV today, making exactly. the exact same jokes, like, yep, it's and that I think what it's part of the reason on the show that I have so many different the variety of people that I have on here because that genre stuff is. Um, you know, it's it, when it's done well, it's as interesting as anything else. And when it's done poorly, it's as done poorly as anything else. Exactly. <laughs> you know? like, exactly. Um, but it is also, it's something that exists so underneath the radar that, mm-hmm. again, because as a writer, nobody tells you how to write a book. It's not like you can go to college and be like, you know what I want to do? Genre writing in romance or horror. Like, yeah. that's not a thing that you can learn in anywhere but just doing it. Mm-hmm. And and being a fan. And- yeah. And watching it. And, you know, for me, not not watching a ton of horror, not reading a lot of horror. It is yeah. things like, I mean, Reservoir Dogs is one of the movies I have memorized. I've seen it so many times. Like, you know, that type of thing is much more of an is much more of an influence for me. But like if you look at what Tarantino is influenced by, it's old, like weird exploitation movies. Yeah. And like and Japanese like movies. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of those things, like it just influenced is like another generation i think you can pull from things you like with other genres but to me i like writing like i like writing the horror stuff i think it's really fun i think you have so much more freedom yeah and and i don't like when things take themselves too seriously and i my if you read my stuff it definitely doesn't so (laughs) yeah and it's it, it is um it's interesting in that it is a community, like you said, like it is a community into which you have to both be a participant and a creator. Like mm-hmm. it's that Wattpad world. Like it just really is like, and I find that section of writing because it's so invisible in most of the writing world. Mm-hmm. And yet it's this big thing that exists in the writing world. And it's like, well, okay. Like, I don't really understand why. I And you know, I don't, I'm fine with not being nominated for an award. Sure. I just mean like in terms of the discussion of the kinds of things that people talk about in terms of like literary Uh, stuff. Yeah. And it it does get, it does get ignored a lot. And and I just, I'm not entirely, I I wonder if it's because they think that these, that using genre is like a crutch because you automatically have like these, these tropes and these like this kind of thing that's built in as opposed to like literary fiction. But I mean, I, I, I don't get it. I don't find reading much literary fiction to be as much enjoyable as to be as enjoyable as reading, you know, um, some sort of bizarre, funny horror book. <laughs> I mean, I enjoy them all differently. Like when I watched yeah. trauma films, like I grew up with the toxic Avenger, like yeah, I, that shit was filmed with like $9. Like I know. there's nothing good about that. And I absolutely love trauma films and yeah. like, it's just the best stuff ever. I will also go see an Academy Award winning sad movie that's a different thing that costs $100 million and be like, well, that's also beautiful. But they're yes. beautiful for different reasons. They're doing different things. Yes. And it is very much like the literary world just seems to exist in a place where it's like, well, this is what literature is. And then mm-hmm. there's this other stuff. And I'm like, fuck romance writers that crank out a book a month and have yeah. 10,000 people. I can't do that. Mm-mm. Like, I can't, I've been a writer for 25 years. I absolutely cannot do what they do. No. 
No, definitely not. I and can't. A, I, and I find that stuff amazing, right? Like, so people that do the genre stuff, like, and I know you've been, we've talked about this on the, on the video podcast. Like, are you going to try to get into that world? Not the romance world, but like the beginning to crank stuff out and say, well, I'm going to do some shorter stuff and I'm going to, because that really is that genre world. Like to make a living out of it, that's sort of what you got to do. Yeah. And you know what? I was thinking about it a lot more too, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in marketing. I'm a professional marketing and thinking about these things is to like, you know, I think a lot of it and I, like the uh, Gary V approach to it with the, the jab, 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 right hook stuff. That's the same thing. You write a short story, you sell it for a dollar or you give it away for free somewhere. And that will bring people in. Maybe they'll follow you. You put your social media handles below it and that fall. And and then you have a book coming out and then people will spend the $15 to get it. It's the same. It's the same thing. It's just putting out shorter stuff out there first. And I think for me, especially because it's, it's hard. I don't, I don't like being on social media. I, that's not in there are some people that I've seen that have grown their following by reviewing other books yeah. and just being part of like this book book world posting stuff up there all the time that's just not that's not my personality I'm not into sharing everything about my life and <laughs> I'm certainly not going to spend my time reading other people's books and reviewing them to try to get a following I don't have time for that if I'm going to write you know and um so that that's that's an option that's a way that a lot of people have taken because that's their that might be their strength that they're really yeah. good at at that at stuff like that but for me it makes more sense what i'm good at is writing stories so i'm going i'm definitely taking that approach now i'm writing um i've teamed up with um an author out of la he writes in a very similar way as me his name is drew stepik and he has written a, a novelette series called fucking scumbags burn in hell and what it is is it's about 30 to 40 pages each story and it's about a fucking scumbag who winds up burning in hell that's very similar very funny it's very it's it's very satisfying because these people get their comeuppance in in the most gory grotesque way funny way possible and he opened it up to other authors to write the next installment so i'm writing installment four it's out june 15th my installment is called karen so you can kind of guess we we know where this one's going yeah, and so it's funny, it's ridiculous, and that's how I mean, it sails from the crypt, right? Like it's amazing stories. Like this is there's yep. a long history in this genre of that kind of thing. Yeah, he's talking about it like the Twilight Zone. Like yeah. that's what he keeps referencing, and I think it's a an absolutely brilliant idea. Um, he he runs a platform that's committed to getting um, like these indie independent small press like horror authors out there. It's called Godless. It's Godless.com, <laughs> and it's it's fantastic. Like what what he's doing to get the word out for other people who write in a similar fashion. That's kind of underground. Like that you know that might have issues getting embraced by sure. like general population, but there's a community of people who really like it. So um, I'm, that's being published exclusively on Godless on June 15th. I'm yeah. finishing it up um, now, but that's, that's the next one that comes out. It might be 35 pages. Yeah. But then are you going to, cause we had talked about this. Like, are you going to start trying to do something like every month? 
Um, um, I'm going to try to start like contributing more short stories, putting stuff out there, um, submitting to places. I have two done since we last talked. Um, <laughs> That's good because that was yeah. just like a month ago. I know. I've been on a roll. One of them is uh, with, with my beta. I just got my criticism back from my, my beta reading team mm-hmm. yesterday. And so I have to go into draft two of that one. And yeah, so, but uh, Karen is coming first because I have a deadline on that. Yeah. So it's- I got... Three. <laughs> well, listen, it's been great chatting with you yeah. uh, again, and uh, uh, I'm excited to read. Um, it, it will will Karen be is like? Is it free or is it out? Is it will it be on like? Is Godless a paid platform? What is it? Yeah, Godless is like a is a site powered through like Shopify, so it's really easy to make a transaction on there. It's going to be forty nine cents. To buy, oh, so to they're, buy they're doing like micro payment stuff with that. Yeah, like, oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, so it'll be it'll be forty nine cents on Godless on June fifteenth. Nice, less so. than less than bubble gum. Exactly, and you could spend. I think maybe one of the first Scumbags books is free, and then there's going to be two more by the time mine comes out. They're being released every month, and yeah. so you'll yeah. have. So you might spend a total of two dollars, but I do recommend reading the first three before mine. Yeah, it's uh no, this is literally right publish repeat. This is great. He's That's just wonderful. doing it with multiple people instead of one so that like yeah. you guys can build and I'm assuming it's around building platforms for everybody. It is. Yes. It is. It absolutely is. It's for it's for getting is if you get one person out there, everyone yeah. better. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. fantastic. Well, yeah. listen, it has been wonderful talking to you. Yeah, you uh, too. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm look, so Outrage Level 10 is out now, which everybody knows because we've talked about that. And Karen is coming out in June. And, and then we're going to start looking for you to be pumping stuff out on a regular basis. Yes, most definitely. <laughs> that, is, that is now the pressure that we are all going to put on you. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a great day and I look forward to chatting again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Well, there you have it. That was Lucy Leitner. Her book, Outrage Level 10, is out now. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard today, do us those two favors. Leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. Don't forget, we got the video podcast coming out now on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel about every uh, Monday and Friday, sporadically. You can also catch the audio version right here on this channel. And the jam is out every Wednesday. So make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration 
through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Repin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Repin wherever you get your podcasts.